Book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 30. We're kind of just jumping into the middle of a story. This is a Philippian jailer. He's speaking to Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. By the help of the Lord, that's what I want to preach on this afternoon or this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just look at your neighbor and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you smile at them, you may be seated. You guys win. You win the contest. This morning it took like, felt like 72 seconds. For the congregation to smile and sit down. You guys just kind of smiled and sat down in like two. So you smoked them by a mile. Makes me feel better already. To say that uh, things had not worked out as expected in the city of Philippi would be really a great, maybe even a gross uh, understatement. Paul and his team were there by divine mandate. It was Paul who had the night vision in Troas of the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. But it hadn't quite worked out as maybe they had envisioned. And here is they're trying to establish a church for the Lord. Every time they went to pray, there was a fortune-telling demonic slave girl who would follow them, and she would scream after them, creating quite a disruption. She, she would scream, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, she's a demonic. She's not trying to help them. But even the demons know. James said they, you know, they know there's one God. They tremble. If you're struggling about who God is, hell and Satan is not. And here we see that they, they know what truth is. They know the power of of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, they know it's the way of salvation. And the Bible says that she did this for many, many days. And finally, Paul had had enough. He was tolerant, he was kind, he was patient, but he had had enough. And the Bible says that he was greatly annoyed. So the next time you're driving in Atlanta traffic... Every day, you can say, well, I'm just like the Apostle Paul because I am greatly annoyed right now. Just don't stay there. Paul was greatly anointed. And he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out. And the Spirit came out. Now that miracle of deliverance infuriated her owners. Paul had violated their property rights over that girl and had destroyed this lucrative source of income. So they kind of decided they'd be uh, wild cowboys and they had a citizen's arrest. They drug Paul and Silas before the two ruling magistrates of the city and those magistrates being the fine Roman citizens that they were, uh, just assumed they were vagabond Jews and they didn't even investigate the charges they didn't even allow Paul and Silas a chance to defend themselves. They ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. And then 
they threw them into prison. They gave a stern warning to the prison warden. These guys are not to escape. Do not let them escape. The jailer, heeding their warning, understanding their power, he not only put them in a high security cell, he put them in the cell in the middle of the prison. And just to make sure, he put their feet in stocks. And Roman stocks were meant to uh, spread the legs in a way that would ensure you remain uncomfortable. Falsely accused. Wrongfully convicted, stripped, beaten, and locked in stocks, these men had every reason to be mad at God. They had questions. They probably didn't understand why this was going on. They were there by divine calling. They, God called them there by dream. And this is what happens. This, this is how the story is going to be told. But, but when we read the Bible and Many of you are already familiar with this passage. There, there's no whining. There's no cursing. There's no angry screams aimed at God. Instead, Paul and Silas at the midnight hour were praying. Praying, praying. We, we understand that, right? You know, if you don't pray regularly, God can orchestrate your path of life. And trust me, you'll be happy to pray. And, and there, there'll be no, 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 no... Uh, hindrances to you praying in your hour in your dark moment in your trial praying is kind of what we expect we kind of volunteer to pray on those seasons but in this hour paul and silas not only are they praying the bible says that they are singing hymns to god and they are not whispering them they are singing loudly because the prisoners are listening to them now, this is not, you know, this is not the church choir. This is not a recital room. This isn't a little school band. This is prison in, Ro in a Roman city. These guys are hardened, callous criminals. Paul and Silas, they're praying. They're singing at the midnight hour when these guys normally probably are asleep. Most situations, you, you know, don't get arrested, but can you imagine if you're in jail and you decide you're going to sing some glad morning we shall see in the midnight hour, that's probably not going to sit very well. But the Bible says the prisoners were listening to them. And somewhere, just as Paul or Silas was hitting a high note, there was a massive earthquake that violently shook the prison. And the Bible says the foundation rocked one way and then it rocked the other and Locks were shattered and doors flung open and shackles snapped loose and locks broke free. But this, this was no ordinary earthquake because I don't know if you've ever paid attention to a picture in the scene in the epicenter of an earthquake. But in this earthquake, it was a God-designed earthquake. Walls did not collapse and roofs did not cave in. Startled from his sweet sleep, Frightened out of his mind, the jailer assumed the worst. They are all long gone. The doors are open. The chains are laying on the floor. They are out of here. This jailer understood Roman authority, and he knew at dawn he was dead. He would be executed as soon as the magistrates understood. So this jailer drew his sword and he prepared to end his own life. 
I'm not sure how Paul could even notice, but somehow, maybe seeing his silhouette in the doorway, Paul cries out to him in a loud voice, do yourself no harm. That's pretty good advice in the valley. That's pretty good advice in the moment of a trial. That's pretty good advice in a moment of confusion and despair. Paul said, do yourself no harm. We are all here. It seemed that time stood still. Paul's words of hope pierced through the suicidal hopelessness of that jailer, and he froze in his tracks, and thankfully, he sheathed his sword. And the Bible says in verse 29 that he called for a light, and he ran in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. We don't know. Maybe he had heard them preach in Philippi. Maybe he was aware of the demonic girl's proclamation that they were, the, were speaking the way of truth and of salvation. We just don't know. But what we do know is that this jailer was now convinced that there was a sovereign God. He wasn't just a part of the pantheon of gods. He was the sovereign God. This jailer, it took an earthquake, but he had arrived at a place to realize there is a God, and he's the only living God, and these men are ambassadors of that God. At that moment, nothing else mattered but being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ or God, this God. So he brought them out and he said this eternally important question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what Rome thinks. It doesn't matter what the, the, the Grecian philosophers say. I want to know what the God of this earthquake and the God that calls you to sing in the midnight hour, how can I be saved? It was a suspense-filled moment. And Paul and Silas encapsulated the gospel message in one simple sentence. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And in that moment, it was enough. And the jailer brought them out. He took them to his house. But when they got to the house, notice Paul and Silas didn't just stop with the one-line sentence. When they got to the house, they turned to the word of the Lord. And they said, now let us explain more fully what we meant by calling on the name of the Lord. And Acts 16 and 32 says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in that same hour of the night, the midnight hour, and he washed their stripes. And the Bible says, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. He believed, he heard the word, and he was baptized. Not in the morning, not on Baptism Sunday next quarter. No, not when the t-shirts get in that they can wear for the photo op. In that hour, 
in that moment, he heard the word and he believed and he was baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, having believed and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. He believed. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard and obeyed the scriptures. He was baptized and he did rejoice. Not just him, but his family, his kids, his household, his servants. It was a glorious day of good news for this man and his house. What amazing grace on that wonderful day. But just as it was in the first century, Paul and Silas's simple life-saving declaration remains good news for every person here in the 21st century. It was good news on that day. It saved that man's life, both then and for eternity. But it's still the good news in the 21st century for every person on the planet. But just like the jailer on that day needed to know more fully what it meant to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and just like Paul and Silas uh, knew that they should turn to the word of the Lord to find the answer to that question, so should you and I do the same. We need to know how do you believe? If believing is being saved, how do you believe? And like Silas and like Paul, if I'm going to answer that question, I'm not looking to the creeds that the church came to believe over time that continue to evolve. I'm not looking to the ancient writings of ancient church fathers. If I'm going to stake eternity on knowing how do you believe, I'm going to the Word of God. I'm going to the Scriptures. I want to know what does the Bible say about believing and being saved. In fact, Jesus himself taught that believing as the Scriptures was the key to salvation. John 7 and 37, on the last day, Feast of the Tabernacles. They're about to go home. They're not coming back to church for quite a few, not days, months. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not yet been crucified, resurrected, or ascended. So what do the scriptures say? What, do the, what does the Bible say about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and being saved from our sins. The good news for you and I today is that Jesus and the apostles had a lot to say about that question. And so we begin with Jesus as well known. It's the beloved words to Nicodemus, maybe the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. You probably can quote it from memory. Many of you can. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sound familiar? You want to know where Paul and Silas got their sermon material? There you go. But, but John, unlike Luke in Acts 16, John here gives us the broader context of the sermon. And so what is the context of Jesus saying, whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life? Well, at least in my mind, you can't get to verse 16 until you've heard him speak in verse 3 and verse 5. And in verse 5, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 8, Jesus continued, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You believe, you'll be born again of water and of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying in verse 8 to Nicodemus? You don't have to understand it to believe it, obey it, and experience it. I don't know where the wind comes from, and I don't know where it goes, but I feel it, it's real, and, I, and it's true. Amen. So, right off the bat, just in this one instance, we see biblically that biblically believing in the Lord Jesus Christ means what? It means being born again of water, water baptism, and of the spirit, spirit baptism. So it shouldn't surprise us as we keep reading that Jesus keeps repeating these same foundational eternal truths over and over and over. I know you wanted him to explain what 666 meant, and you wish he had given a date and a time and when's the apocalypse and what's the four horsemen. I know you would have liked to have known more about Melchizedek, but Jesus kind of focused on the eternal essentials of what it means to believe and be saved. <laughs> Mark 16 and 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned and these signs shall follow those who believe in my name they will cast out demons they will speak with new tongues jesus is clear it's simple but it's clear believing and baptism are inseparable. You cannot lift believing off out of the interwoven 
tapestry of scripture and pretend it supersedes the rest that is left. Believing and baptism are inseparable. And one of the telltale tangible signs that you believe is that you will speak in a language you've never learned. That's the biblical reason and answer for what it means to believe. Fast forward 10 days or so. We get to hear Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Does he follow what Jesus spoke? And notice as Peter's preaching, Acts 2. I hope you've read it before and heard it before. But Peter anchors his sermon, not in philosophy, not, not in cute stories, but Peter anchors his sermon in the Old Testament scripture. And he especially quotes Joel. I will pour out my spirit in the last days. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he ends that quote in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. Right? But this passage is true. It's in the old. Paul quotes it later in Romans, but that passage never stands alone. It's in the context of biblical explanation in the very same sermon. Peter provides further insight. What does it mean to call on the Lord and who is the Lord? And so he preaches that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men... And brethren, what shall we do? We want to be saved. We want to call on the name of the Lord. We want to know how do we do that? So Peter, like Paul, plainly tells them in one simple sentence how to believe and how to call on the name of the Lord. He said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. We see it in the teaching of Jesus. We see it in the preaching of Peter. And it became the universal message and the universal practice of the New Testament church. Amen. Amen. Look at Acts 10. It takes three divine visions and three divine rebukes for Peter to get over his prejudice nature and and. and Upbringing, his ethic, if you would. God had to give him three visions to go and do what he had just preached, you know, days earlier about whosoever will, right? Upon all flesh, that message. But nonetheless, once he got over it and once he submitted, listen to what Peter preached in Acts 10 to these Gentiles. And he commanded, speaking of Jesus, us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who or was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, speaking of Jesus, all the prophets 
The Old Testament is what he's saying. Witness that, what? Through his name. Whoever does what? Believes in him will receive remission of sins. Remission means baptism every time you see it in Acts and in the scriptures. So what does Peter say? I'm not giving you my own opinion. I'm just going to preach to you the scriptures, which for him was the prophets. And so Peter said, all of this declares that through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. And while Peter was yet speaking these words, what words? Calling on the name of the Lord believing on the name of the Lord for remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Ghost fell on all those who heard the word. And those of the Jews who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on people like you and me. We were just dogs, not do the scraps of the Father's table, and yet on us was poured out the Holy Spirit. And how did these skeptical Jewish believers know? They did not want these people in their church. They did not want a miracle to happen. They did not want the Bible study to go well. But they were there because Peter was afraid of getting fried by Jesus if he didn't go. So he brought his posse to hopefully cover his tracks so he could maintain his, his little Jewish image, right? How did these skeptical Jewish believers know that these Gentiles had believed and received the Holy Spirit? Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's what Jesus said. And these signs shall follow them that believe. They will speak with other tongues. Then Peter answered, I don't know what to do here, guys. Can anyone forbid water? I just preached that in his name comes remission of sins. I didn't give them the Holy Spirit. God did. I didn't teach them how to talk in tongues. That's a miracle of God. We cannot deny that we must baptize them in the name of Jesus. So verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the message of the Bible captured in one chapter. How do you believe? If you believe and you will be saved, then how do you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the apostles preached. This is what they expected. This is what they just saw, that when every person in the Bible believed, they repented of their sins. When every person in the Bible believed, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When every person in the Bible believed, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit and spoke with other tongues. That's the biblical answer for how to believe. It's why 
This, this is why Paul, this is why Paul in Acts 19, when he returns to Ephesus on his third mission trip, and he meets some professed uh, disciples. I don't know how he recognized them. I don't know if they were wearing a cross around their neck. I don't know, you know, what was going on with these disciples. But Paul recognized them, and he knew that it was that their faith, their belief was incomplete. And because of this apostolic expectation, because of this biblical, uh, biblical path and biblical framework for what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul questions them so directly. Acts 19 and 2, he said to these professed disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, unto then, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, great, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. You believe that. But he said to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that's on Christ Jesus. Paul, notice, notice here, apostolics, Paul does not mock nor minimize where they were. Paul does not short sell repentance. Believing begins with repentance. They believed. They had repented. But Paul also knew that believing does not stop with repentance. But believing be continues with calling on the name of the Lord in baptism and being filled with the Spirit. So what does Paul do? And what do they do in verse 5? And when they heard this, they were baptized again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. That's the biblical plan. That's how you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul would write to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. What is the gospel message? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it is simple. It's the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the saving gospel plan of the Bible. So based on the word of God, the teaching of Jesus, the preaching of Peter and Paul, you and I today understand and can know without a doubt that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is not mere mental assent. It's not some memorized prayer that you copycat. Believing on the gospel message according to the word of God is done by repenting of your sins. It's done by identifying with the death 
of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the first step. You can try to go and be buried, and you can try to rise again. But until you die, there's no need to go into the tomb, and there's no need to be resurrected. It begins with repentance. How do you believe on the Lord? We know from our Bible, and we can stake our eternal security in the scriptures that believing continues by being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ where we identify with his burial. That's what Paul said to the Romans and to the Colossians, that we are buried with him in baptism. Anybody been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's right. We baptized someone this morning in that name. And then believing means that we receive. We receive the power of the Holy Spirit. It'll be evidence that we believe because we'll speak in a language we've never learned. And that is how we identify with the resurrection. His death is repentance, his burial in baptism, his resurrection by the power of his spirit inside of us. That's what Paul declared when he said to the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. It's an open invitation. No one is excluded. Nobody is disqualified. Jesus Christ is the only living God. And today, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, today you can know him. You can know the creator God. You can know the Savior of your soul. And today, you can be known by him. You just have to come believing. And you have to believe as the scriptures have said. You can bring your shame. You can bring your brokenness. You can bring your condemnation. You can bring the emotional trauma. You can bring the physical abuse. You can bring bitterness and anxiety and fear and anger and depression. He's not afraid. He's not scared. He's not intimidated. He's not put off. He'll not slam the door in your face. He simply opens his nail-scarred hands and he says, Come, come unto me. Come unto me if you're thirsty. Come unto me if you're ready for a life that is sustained, full of peace and power. Come unto me, believe, and be saved. In fact, Jesus said, come. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, I will give you rest. Tired of living in the valley of decision? Wrestling between is it true or not? Can I trust him or not? Is it all just a philosophy and construction of man trying to explain big questions? Today you and I have the opportunity of a lifetime. You and I can believe and be saved. That's no small matter. You and I today can experience God's love and mercy and grace and truth for ourselves today. Even if you're here and you've once believed, 
You've repented. You've believed and were baptized. You've believed and received the Holy Spirit. You've spoken in tongues. But if the truth is today that what you profess then is not what you practice now, you can dress it up. You can put a tie on it. You can put a dress on it. You can come with a smile. You can write the check. But you know that inside you are not practicing what you once professed. Today, you have the opportunity of a lifetime. Today, you can believe and be saved. Today, you can believe again and obey the word of God. Today, you can again submit yourself to the spiritual authority God instituted. We all stand in need of a Savior. Who cares if your net worth is climbing, status symbols are accumulating? In light of eternity, when you're hanging in a moment of time between eternity and time, I just don't think the petty things of this world and the lies of culture and the false assurances of affluence are going to mean much in that moment. You dress it up real nice, but you hear me in the Holy Ghost. God sees your misery. God sees your restlessness. God sees your anxiety that is eating you up from the inside out. You, you once believed. But if you split eternity right now, it's in the hands of God. Because you don't practice what you profess. You kicked God off the throne of your life. You pulled the most terrible coup of all time you've knocked him off the throne you don't mind if he sits around the board table and gives you advice and blesses you by having his name a part of your board of directors but you are the king and you rule and reign in your own heart and the truth is is behind the facade you're a wreck in your mind and in your heart and in your emotions and I'm talking to you today in the love and the grace and the mercy of God, not with condemnation and not with shame. I couldn't put my finger on your head if I tried to. I have no idea who I'm talking to. But you hear me in the Holy Ghost. You have the opportunity of eternity today. You can believe and be saved. You can believe and repent. You can believe and acquiesce the throne. You can step back and say, God, I'm sorry I was ever so stupid to think that I could roll, run my own life. I yield the throne. I surrender to your lordship. God, I'm sorry that I made myself my own pastor and I determined what was true and what was tradition. I'm sorry, God. I submit to your word. I submit to the spiritual authority that guides me in this word because God, above all else, I must be saved.
It is the opportunity of eternity that this day you and I have the privilege to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved.